I will. Gosh, we're vastly decimated this evening, especially this side. Something happened to the people who sit on this side. <laughs> Some of you change sides as part of the problem. Okay. Um, do we have any questions, comments from this last chapter? This is our last session on this book, so anything to ask? Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> You've been doing so well for me, I have gotten a little lazy, I must confess. Pardon me? No, Brenda, don't you have a question? Did I give you too hard a time last night? I gave Brenda rather a hard time last night. She might not be so willing to ask a question tonight. Okay. I can, I can go from the book. I'm just teasing you, but I wasn't prepared with the first sentence. You don't have to stretch for questions. I can talk. Yes, Amitha. Could it be one or the other? It has to be both. Both. Of course. You, 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 otherwise, you would be an unconscious thing being acted upon. It, it's, life is a tapestry, threads running both directions. A lifetime is a, 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 this much of a snapshot in this vast tapestry. So at any point that you uh, frame it and call it this life, you're going to be looking at something that started there and started from here and intersects with all these other crosses and you can't just circle it out and make it separate. It's just, that's, I mean, that's also really fundamental to this whole subject that we've been talking about because what we're talking about is, is, is uh, letting go, as Swami calls it, of the, uh, the ego being like dense color or dirt on the window to the infinite. And that's the same as sort of just blocking out this little thing and separating yourself out and working just from the ego and its little understandings of things instead of the, the real effort. In essence, what he's describing in this chapter is the real effort, effort of, of channeling. And he says um, creative expression, which is just the same as channeling, really. Creative expression, the secret of that is to allow it to come through you. And, and therefore, the work that you do in order to be a creative person, whether that creativity actually expresses itself through any tangible works, or merely the creativity to be original in the way you live your life, is to cl uh, clear the window, to free yourself from egoic involvement, from egoic inclinations. And that's why he presents Paramhansa Yogananda whose consciousness was completely enlightened as the purest and the best channel because he was truly a channel for, a, for the divine within. And that's where he was saying, you don't have to look outside. Even he implies here, I hadn't, even, I hadn't really noticed it till I read it this time. The whole um, uh, criticism that he offers implied and explicitly through the whole book of channeling somebody else, in essence, is a criticism of looking outside yourself. You're looking outside yourself for somebody else, else's wisdom to come through you. You ask some astral entity you know, to tell you what's true, or you, and in that kind of channeling where the very nature of it is to look outside yourself. Now, when you look to the guru or to a genuine saint, the difference is that there's no other that you're looking at. What you're looking at is you're looking at a clearer window to the infinite and then by looking at them, the infinite light shines on you. And then it illuminates yourself. Do you see the difference? But when you look at someone who's unenlightened, what they project to you is their own ego. And their own ego comes to you, and it doesn't enlighten you, really. It just, it's just a projection of their ego. And so you get all their ego energy, and then you can counter with yours, or you can take their ego energy to make your ego stronger, but there's no divine element in it. Whereas when you, when you look... What, what appears to be outside yourself toward an enlightened being, you're looking out a clear window at the sunshine. And so the sunshine touches you. Do you see how different that is? Interestingly, when Swami Kriyananda, um, in, in, in an interesting continuation of this thought, when Swami Kriyananda was a young man living in the ashram where Paramhansa Yogananda was at Mount Washington, and he said Mount Washington had been a hotel that Yogananda bought and turned into an ashram, Swamiji said, really, for, for all the years that Yogananda was alive, it remained a hotel. In this sense, he said that people would come and people would go. 
People would check in and people would check out. He said most of the people who came to Yogananda did not stay. Con considering how many came, how many left, only a very small handful of people stayed. Jesus had the apostles, really, and Mary Magdalene and a few others. It's very small numbers can, can yet effect great changes in the world. But Swamiji said what, what would happen to people is in Master's presence, their own consciousness would be clearly illumined, illuminated. And people left Yogananda not because they were running away from Yogananda, but because they were running away from themselves. Because it was just too much to be in such a bright light and see oneself as clearly as one has to see oneself when you actually compare yourself to true enlightenment. And you just recognize how, how much work there is to be done. In our satsang last night, we were talking about that a little bit, that there's just a lot of work to be done. And you can either allow that to make you sad for the rest of your incarnations, I mean, what is the point? Or you can say, well, this is it, let's get to work. But it's not easy. Um, someone in our satsang, a different satsang group last night, was also commenting just being at, the example she used was she was at Whole Foods, and she took a number to be waited on at one of the busy counters, and somebody else cut in front of her even though she had the number. And she, she was um, ruefully admitting that that really upset her. And even though it's a ridiculous thing to get upset about, she had to admit that it upset her. Well, she's not the only one. All of us have had many moments in our lives when we overreact to something completely not worth it. But Swami's comment to me when I, I wasn't overreacting in that case, but I was distressed by an unexpected revelation of, of the continuing presence of a fault I thought I had overcome. But his answer was very apt. His answer was, well, be glad you found out because you were not putting out any energy to overcome it because you didn't know you had it. Now you know that it still plagues you and therefore you have to put out energy again. So these little things come to us like I'm capable of getting upset over something as minor as somebody cutting in line. So you're, not, you're, you're cruising along thinking you pretty much have your consciousness together and you discover you don't. Well, in the presence of a master who is always feeding back to you, I'll give you a little bit of an experience of, of my life with Swamiji. I never lived with Yogananda, but from the little pictures I've had of my uh, relationship with Swamiji, I can extrapolate what he's talking about. Swamiji is exceedingly kind, um, very, very supportive, always sees the best. He, he never holds you to your limitations. Nonetheless, he vibrates at a very high level of energy, at a very high level of clarity and focus and concentration. So when you're with him, you have to pay attention. You can't just sort of be half asleep and, um, I mean, we all say dopey things, but you can't say continuously dopey things that are based on the fact that you're just not putting out any energy. You know, it's, it's almost entirely a question of energy and awareness. So over the years of, of being with him in many different circumstances, you just have to be awake. You can't just kind of blither on. You can't just fall into moods. You can't assert a lot of the kind of negative things that you would assert on a regular basis. It's not really because he condemns you, but in that vibration, it just doesn't, you can't do it. You can't, it feels, it's almost like the atmosphere itself burns you up. So even like in a normal, like in your home with your friends, there'll be times of impatience or rudeness. And David and I always use as a standard, would you have said that to Swami? You know, would you have behaved that way to Swami? No, you wouldn't have. You just couldn't. And so, of course, being with him requires raising your energy. And not everyone enjoys that all the time. Uh, because it's, a, it's an automatic discipline on you, and if you, if you have a resistance to that. Now, Swamiji said that Yogananda was much more so. Master said, uh, Swami said that Master didn't even let the disciples talk when they were around him. She, she said, uh, Diamanta writes, she said, when Master was with company, he would just hold forth, and he would talk philosophy, and he would an entertain questions, and all of this. And the uh, the guests would say to the, the devotees who were close to Yogananda, oh, it must be wonderful to have him be like this all the time. And they said he never, he, he makes us be silent around him because he didn't want them to work on that level. Now, 
all the time, of course not. But, but nonetheless, Diamata says, and some of the other women say, he imposed upon them a discipline of silence. And that could be very, uh, you can see that's very demanding because he didn't want them to be on a frivolous mental level as much as they were. He wanted them to be on a deeper, uh, more, more intuitive level. All that can be very tiring. And you can see after a while that if you don't have the self-honesty and the self-esteem to really see it for what it is, which is more is being asked of me than I care to give right now, your inclination will be to find fault with the master, which is what people did. Well, I didn't come for this. I came for that. This is what I really wanted. He's not treating me the way I think I should be treated, blah, 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 whatever it is. And you find some reason and you're gone. Now, where was I... Where was I going with that? What started that? Oh, I was talking about how when you are in the presence or looking to... Now, that's still true. It's, it may not be quite as obvious as we have to work a little harder for the relationship, but if we work to attune ourselves through our meditation, in meditation you get that really deep sense of what it is to be in tune in the presence of in inspiring moments, whether they're created because Swami's with us or they're created because we have simply attuned ourselves individually or together. You know, in this sanctuary, we've had some extraordinary moments in which we really know what it feels like to be in the presence of the Master, and we really know what the Master feels like. And you get attuned to that, and you move out of that, you suffer. You say unkind things, you create problems for people, you're, you let your ego take you over, you really suffer. And, you, and you, you're anxious to get back. You know, there's no pleasure in it, but just nothing but pain and being out of control. And so you, you like being in the light of the Spirit. You like looking to that light. And, and that's what makes us um, capable of being instruments of that light, is allowing ourselves to be in the light. But uh, self-honesty and self-acceptance and self-esteem of a true nature um, it's fundamental to that. It's a, very, it's a very interesting how it all plays together. So Swamiji says, don't look. If you really want to be a true channel for true divine consciousness, don't look outside yourself, look inside yourself. And then I was just trying to reconcile how being in tune with a higher, truly spiritually evolved soul takes you deeper in yourself, not outside yourself. It's one of those paradoxes that you have to gradually get your mind around. Does that make sense? Cyrus. Else it would be really tough on all of us, wouldn't it? Yeah, so, so it's up uh -huh. to me to sort of, you know, get what I can learn and maybe try a filter, you know. What no, a, a better way, um, yes, you can do it like that. Let me, let me just try to think what I'm trying to say. God uses, God has instruments. And, and what he's really talking about what I share with you as you observe, I'm always telling you, this is what I learned from Swami, this is what I learned from Master. And so I'm doing my best merely to pass on to you both the vibration and the content of what's been given to me. I'm not, uh, there are individuals who, who try to get you to relate to their ego. Of course, inevitably, I, you, you're forced to relate to my ego because I have one and there it is, there's nothing you can do. But um, it's valid to, to look to what comes through me because I am trying to give you um, something other than my own ego. This, I mean, much of what I say, I'm not telling you because I know it. I'm just telling you because it was taught to me. So, of course, I mean, everybody can teach you. And naturally, there are people all around you who have egos who can teach you a great deal. Um, but what they're mostly teaching you is, is the way it came to me once when somebody praised me for something I did. The irony of it, you see, is they're praising you for the part where you're not there. They're praising you for the, they're saying you're so wonderful for the part of you that isn't, that, that there's no you to praise. You know, the, the place where you've managed to wash off the window enough so that something else can get through, and then you get back in the way, and then they tell you that you've done a great thing, but you haven't. You've just gotten out of the way. And, uh, and that's true of everyone, because all of us have, all of us are windows on the infinite, and it, one time or another, even a very, very ignorant person can just open their mouth and tell you just what you need to know. So you should see windows everywhere, as Yogananda put it, windows on the infinite everywhere. But beware of those who, who don't give the credit to God or say they're giving the credit to God, but you can feel that they're not. You know, 
and beware of, of, of me or anyone when you when you see that you know and then and, and be gracious <laughs> but don't take it too seriously <laughs> okay but it doesn't serve and I don't want to be too personal in this but since it doesn't serve to constantly be evaluating that puts you in a very strange position because if you think was that ego or was that, was that intuition? Was that ego or was that intuition? Was, was that advice from ego or was that, you know, it's like, that's not really how it works. It's like if, if an individual is sincere in their desire to help people, they can help you. If you're sincere, let me phrase it differently, if you're sincere in your desire to be helped, you will be helped. It's your sincerity that creates it, not the person's purity. But if you're very sincere, you will naturally be drawn to sources that inspire you. If you yourself are looking for ego gratification, then you get drawn to, to sources that gratify your ego. One of the interesting things I read somewhere was that the karma for spiritual pride is to be drawn into false teachings. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Yeah. And it's sort of, it, when you think about it, it's, it's really appropriate. Even, even just for a while, you can get drawn into a dead-end teaching because of pride. So you don't want to be, so sometimes people... It's a, it's a kind of pride. Only a truly enlightened master can teach me. I can't learn from Kriyananda because he's not fully self-realized. He himself says so, so there. So how do you know what he's saying is true? Well, really, just don't worry about it. Just, in the end, of course, it's self-evident with those of us who have the responsibility of sharing these teachings here. Of course, we're not self-realized. But that doesn't mean everything we say is stupid either. But by all means, keep your discrimination. But even in the presence of Master, you should keep your discrimination. Because you have to always discriminate. It's, it's your discrimination that's trying to be developed. And Master often did, Swami said, very peculiar things so that you could develop your discrimination. Not so that you could judge him, but so that you could discern what it was that you were supposed to do. Because it's your intuition that you're trying to develop. And everything that comes into you is just to develop your own intuition. So thoughts and ideas and, and guidance, you have to just filter it through your own discrimination and decide what's true. I had a very interesting experience with someone who um, was very displeased with some, some answer he'd gotten to a question he'd, he'd asked Swami many years ago and it had been very disturbing to him for a long time. And he and I started a conversation about it and he to I said, tell me exactly what happened and he told me that he asked Swami a certain question. And the question was essentially, what do the scriptures say about so-and-so? And Swami thought for a moment and then told him what the scriptures say about so-and-so. Now the man took that to mean that that's what he was supposed to do. And that advice was very, not very practical or good advice for him. And so he, he decided that Swami didn't know what he was talking about. Okay, now I pointed out to him the obvious, but you didn't ask Swami what you should do. You asked Swami what the scriptures say. And he told you. And it was you who decided that that was personal advice. And part of that, there was this sort of this other little overlay, which was the individual involved had a lot of pride. And therefore, the, their thought form was, if the scriptures say it, that's what I'll do, you know, in this sort of very dogmatic spiritual pride kind of way. And the result was to get trapped in false teachings. You see how it can happen? Because there was a lot of pride. Instead of saying, how can I grow into that truth? How can I start from where I am what is my next step spiritually? The question was, what do the scriptures say? And then I'll try to do that, and of course I'll fail because that's not the advice for me. That's why Yogananda himself says, um, you need living examples. You need living teachers because the scriptures can be interpreted many ways. It has to be made personal for you. So it's not enough to just say, this is what they said. This is what was written. I have that problem sometimes with people who have been trained a lot through SRF and through the SRF lessons, especially if they've just been trained through the lessons, people will come to me and say, well, this is what I'm supposed to do because it says in the lessons. And it puts me in a very awkward position because that's not really very real advice. It's just words on a paper. It has to be then translated through some kind of, yes, it's not that it's untrue, but what does it mean for you today? Where are you standing? What's forward for you? So even in the presence of a master, you have to figure out what that really means. You have to figure out what it means, and then you have to figure out what you're going to do about it at all times. It, it, Self-realization is not easy, and it's not, for, it's not for the masses. 
and it, it won't be a really, you know, popular movement in this yuga, I'm sure. Because it just, I mean, not, not in its purest form. I mean, I don't really know. It says it's the, the teaching of the new age, but it's, it's like people say, I remember someone said, I've been to a lot of new age churches where they talked about overcoming the ego, but you people really mean it. <laughs> oh my God. Dharma? The question is, how can you tell when you're in tune? Swami, when Swami was asked that, he said, joy. I mean, you put it in reverse. If you're suffering, you're out of tune. Swami says the sign of attunement is joy. And, and that's, that's, a real simple, that's a real simple answer. If you're not feeling joy, that in some way you've, you've lost the ray. But in truth, I put up the eight manifestations of God. All of them are signs of attunement. Any of those are signs of attunement. If you can be in any of those vibrations, I, I think about it, I'm not a Star Trek fan, but I've seen you know, enough of those episodes to know that there's that place where they go where there's, they beam me up, you know, and they go and they stand in that beam and they stand right in that beam and they're, they dematerialize and then they can be beamed over to some other place. I've always loved that image because I sort of feel like there's this ray, which is how Swamiji calls it, this ray of, 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 of right vibration. And you kind of move out of it and it doesn't go anywhere. It, and you move out of it and nothing seems to really work right. And then you just get back in it. And then when you're in it, everything just happens correctly. And you, and you start, just as you say, you start wrong thoughts. I've, uh, I've shared with some of you just a very interesting thing that happened to me. And all of us get out of tune. You must understand, the wonderful thing about getting in, out of tune is you can just get back in tune. It's not like having your leg amputated or something. It's just something that you've done with wrong thought. I, can rem I remember one particular cycle of time when I got very out of tune. It always begins in some small way, usually with ego or pride. depends on who you are. Pride, ego, moods, uh, excessive self-concern, pity for yourself, a feeling that you've been mistreated, you know, all of those different cycles. Anger at some particular person that just kind of builds and builds, and pretty soon you're just not vibrating anymore in the, in the ray. Um, I remember once I just got into one of my many cycles of just being out of tune. I don't remember really what caused that particular one, but I just was getting more and more out of whack, just in my head. My responses to life were just nutty. Nothing was going right. And I just realized that I was really out of tune, and, and the way it was manifesting it then was this incredibly self-concerned little circle. You know, it was just my energy, my aura was completely imploded. And I'd be with people, and I just give, I gave nobody any energy. Just nothing was happening. It was all was just always worried about me. What about me? What about me? What about me? You know, when you're with people, and all you're thinking is, what about me? What about me? You're not like nothing happens much. And I, I specifically remember being uh, in the SPD market, which was the the, gro the only grocery store in, in the Grass Valley area at that time. Now there's gazillions of others. And I was there, and there, were the, there was this a couple and their child. And they were people from Ananda that I wasn't that fond of. They weren't really part of my circle of friends. They were perfectly fine people, but they weren't people I knew well. And I saw them like sort of like this, and because I was so concerned about me, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to meet them. And how you get, oh, I don't want to see them. I don't want to have to talk to them. I don't want it like this. It wasn't out of concern for them. It was just I didn't want to have to relate because I, what about me, you know, kind of energy. And I started to like slip away because they hadn't quite seen me. And I just had this picture in my mind that I, I had walked out of the light and all I had to do was just turn around and come back. It wasn't like this big issue. See, because by then I was obsessed with the fact that I was out of tune. <laughs> you know, and so I was also worried about being out of tune that my energy was bizarre. I thought, you, you got here? Just turn around. And I turned and I walked straight down the aisle and I talked to them. But I, I gave a lot of energy. In other words, I channeled a lot of energy instead of just wanting all the energy to come to me. It was very interesting. From that moment until, until now, this present day, there's a very special bond between us, you know? Even though we've still never had any real association, but, but whenever we meet, there's just this sort of deeper understanding. It was a little grace from God that came. But it's always been so crystal clear to me that 
you get out of tune, you get back in tune. And there's no point in being paranoid about it. And all you have to do to be in tune is begin to manifest some, that's where uh, you just be a channel for something. And all you are is your consciousness. If your consciousness becomes the flow of outward moving energy of an upward, uplifted nature, that's who you are. And when you stop doing that, that's who you are. So it's mysterious, but really not at all mysterious, when you, especially when you think of the eight manifestations. There was another longer cycle that I went through, which I've shared with you some, that in the first, the first writing of the Bible, Bhagavad Gita commentary that Swami did was very, very long. It still exists in uh, Rays of the Same Light, I think it's called. And then he wrote Rays of the One Light. The first time he wrote it, he, he was trying to say everything. The second time he wrote it, he really wrote it to be read at Sunday service. And I intensely, I was intensely frustrated with those readings because it was a, a long Bible reading and a long Gita reading. We'd have to read each one every Sunday. They were very good, but they were just too long to be read out loud. Swami now admits this, and he admitted it even then, but he wasn't willing to deal with it for several years. And I don't know why, but that, it, just, it just irritated me. I allowed it to irritate me that the readings were so long. And, and, I, would, and I, I usually would be able to master my mood for Sunday service and be interested and cheerful. But in between, I would be very upset about it. And I just, I let it grow in my mind. I carped about it. The, the last Sunday, the reading included, O oh, Arjuna, you who are free of the carping spirit, I will reveal my divine self to you. And I, I talked only about the Bible portion and not the Gita portion, but it's very interesting. The carping spirit which is the complaining, whining, uh, criticizing spirit is a profound block to divine realization. And that's why just before Krishna takes away the veil and shows Arjuna his infinite self, I mean, it's the, it's the, uh, the triumphant moment of the whole Bhagavad Gita when the vision of God is offered to Arjuna. And it comes from, oh, you the uncarping one, the one who is free of the carping spirit. Now I can show you the infinite. I mean, that's quite a juxtaposition when you think about it. And I really felt it because I was carping. Carping is a kind of nagging, whining, always complaining. And, and, he, and he didn't say, oh, you who are free of hysterical moods or anything. Krishna just said, you are free of the carping spirit because we destroy our peace in little niggly parts. If we're dramatically upset, we notice. But it's the little habit of constant complaining. And I just got into a real carping spirit about those readings. And it, it, it just started manifesting in many bizarre ways. But I, I just didn't, I didn't realize it, but God gave me the revelation. I was, we were in the house we lived in on Colorado Avenue before the community, so this was 14 years ago. I had a step, a step trash can with a steel lid like that. And it was just like, you know, this business of the readings would hover around my mind, and every so often it would come in, and I would about it like this. And I stepped on the trash can, I had this big load of garbage, and really God's voice spoke to me and said, if you keep on with this attitude, it's going to take you off the path. And that's a, that was quite a statement. And I knew it was true, because you criticize one thing, then you criticize another, then you criticize another. And I just had the garbage in my hand, and I just threw the whole thing in the garbage. I threw my whole attitude in the garbage. I just, it's not worth it, you know? And then after that, I was perfectly happy. And very shortly after, he rewrote them. Because it just wasn't worth it. And so a lot of times, you just have to say, is this really, that's what Master would say. Don't let anything get your goat of peace, is how he put it. Don't, is it worth it? Is it really, really worth giving up my peace of mind for this? You know, does it really matter in the great scheme of things enough to pollute my consciousness? Because you do, just like you said, you start down that road and pretty soon you're somewhere you never expected to be. And the other peculiarity about getting out of tune, and that's exactly what's also we're talking about here, because channeling is the process of being in tune, is that the vibration is very sensitive. And I see this in terms of that's why we tell people, that's why Master says, environment is stronger than willpower and satsang whether your consciousness goes toward the light or away from it depends upon the company you keep. And then someone said, well, what if I'm alone, Master? And he said, well, am I not always with you? But when you have the opportunity to actually have satsang, it's, it's tremendously important. That's why we, we try to get people, and people here are pretty good, so we don't uh, 
hammer on it a lot. But Sunday service being the primary satsang we have, although some of you, you know, choose something else, but let's say weekly, Sunday service is a very good one, to just always come. And don't, don't, don't make it something that you decide whether you come or not. Because, see, you decide not to come, and then you forget what the inspiration feels like. And then the next time, it's easier to decide not to come because you no longer quite remember why you wanted to come. And eventually, you just get in a habit that doesn't include that vibration, but that vibration is so subtle, you don't know you don't have it. You see? Because maya has its own power. And that's why the habit of daily meditation, the habit of group meditation, the habit of group satsang, of kirtan, of Sunday service, or Tuesday night classes, or Monday night satsang, whatever it is, but just something that you always do, whether you want to or not, therefore you never lose touch with the vibration, and you never get so confused as to imagine you can live without it. And that's what I've, I've seen. And that, and then it, but it's a great gift to become firmly established enough to know that you're out of tune. Whenever I've been out of tune, I'm so grateful that I know that I'm out of tune because that tells me that I do know what attunement is. You see? And so you don't worry about it. Just be glad that you can come back. Just You walked out, and you just walked back. That's all. You had wrong attitudes. You have right attitudes. It's as simple as that. And Swamiji talks about in here, um, when he starts talking about uh, you know, how to really be a channel, and he you know, closes the book by saying, you're blessed by that which flows through you. One of the ways in which you get back in tune is you start channeling the energy that you yourself want to have. That's why when I was in the grocery store, and the way my lack of attunement was manifesting, is I simply did not want to have to give any energy to anybody. I just had this very weird idea, like the little bird in the story. What else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself? The, the little bird is sent out, you know, in our, our festival of light, and it says, be fruitful in the gifts God has given to you and share them with others as we have shared with you, the little parents say to the bird. And the bird flies around and begins to enjoy it, and then he gets confused. Well, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? And so he closes in. And then it says, in the bird learns very slowly even though repeatedly he lost everything he had, right? And that's sort of like, to go back to my own little story, I started feeling a little out of sorts, and the more out of sorts I felt, the more I concentrated on how out of sort I felt. And this, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it. Instead of just saying, who cares how I feel? You know, let's see what I can do to help others. Let's see what I can do to give out cheerful energy. It's a responsibility to be a channel. I mean, it's, a, it's our responsibility. It's the little bird's responsibility. So just in that moment, just turning and going to give energy, instead of thinking that I needed to hoard for myself, just changed everything. Just completely changed everything. Because all of a sudden, the window was open again. Otherwise, I'd close the window, and I couldn't understand why I was so small. You see? And this is where a whole lot of very fundamental teaching comes. Swami mentions it in here, too. You affirm it, even if it's not true, you make your best sincere effort you know, to say God is the doer, even if you hardly know whether he is or not, but you keep affirming that reality. You're cheerful even if you don't feel cheerful. You're, you try to be calm and peaceful. You resist wrong consciousness, whether it's spontaneous or not, because if you keep affirming it, then eventually it will become spontaneous to you. When somebody, somebody asked Swamiji once, within Ananda, what qualifies someone to be a minister? His answer was so perfect. He said, a minister is someone who, even in the midst of their own trials and sufferings, still is able to give energy to others, still is willing to give energy to others, still will give energy to others, and is able to do so. And that's just, it's just very interesting, isn't it? That implies so many levels of self-control, right understanding, um, inner attunement, just many things like that. You know, and so we don't have a degree program. Yogananda said he, didn't, he wasn't interested in creating DDs, which are normally doctors of divinity. He called them doctors of delusion. He said, you need to, to change your consciousness. It's not a question of accumulating information. And how do you do that? You practice all the time. You practice with your spouse, you practice with your children, you practice with your coworkers, you practice with the clerk in Whole Foods who doesn't recognize that it's your number next, right? You just all the time practice. When is the time not to be a channel of higher consciousness? 
like think about it you know and why would we want to channel through us a kind of consciousness that we don't want to have because we become what we channel and when is the light of the infinite not present except when we shut the shutter and that's what it is that we're really trying to do but you see the greatness of that is uh, you're always free, you're always happy. At least potentially you have it, the whole control is all right inside of you. Just right there. Now it takes, sometimes life is very challenging. We had a very interesting situation right in our own school. We have a family that has recently lived in Israel. And you know, we have a little boy in our school who's from Israel. And so the children are talking about the school rules, be happy. And this little boy raises real questions that our children don't face. Oh, what if a bomb had just gone off from the street down? You know, I mean, well, what if a bomb has gone off? No, this is not just this is not a fair weather teaching, and so you it's not something you have to practice when it isn't life threatening, so that when it really comes down to it, the habit will be there. If the habit is to carp and to resist, then when a big trial comes, you'll just fall right down that pit. But if the habit is there to always respond as a channel of infinite consciousness as best you can, and when you fail to accept that you've fallen and be calm about it and get back as fast as you can, then when the really big times come, you can be really fantastic. You read stories like Corey Ten Boom, life in uh, the concentration camps and just the struggles that they had. There's the extraordinary story of the fleas in Corey Ten Boom's book. Corey and her sister Betsy were incarcerated in these, it's one of the worst concentration camps somewhere in Europe. And, they used to have these, they used to have, try to have prayer meetings and they would have all people of all faiths, Muslims, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, Jehovah's Witnesses, people who would never get along. If you believed in God, you banded together in the face of all that darkness. But uh, the guards would break up those meetings and, and they had to hide the, the little bit of the Bible that they had with them and it was always very dangerous. And then they moved into this one camp which uh, was, and, and, and every night Betsy, in all through the time that Betsy was there, and Betsy was the older sister and guided Corey, Betsy died and Corey lived. Betsy, every night they would say prayers, thanking God for everything that had happened. Thank you for the dry bread. Thank you for the crowded situation. And then they, they went to this other camp and it was the worst of all and the beds were full of fleas. And it came time to say the prayers the first night they were there and Betsy thanked, thank you Jesus for the fleas. And Corey, for her, I mean, you know, they're, they're in so much misery, but, but the ego always just has a point. And, and Corey just could not thank God for the fleas. In fact, she was very, very angry at God because of the fleas, because of everything that they had to endure, which was just beyond human comprehension. Why did he also give them fleas? And she just was not able to thank God for the fleas. And Betsy was just thanking God for the fleas, with like everything else, because Betsy was just always in that, state of grace, true grace. And so they noticed in this new camp that they were able to have their prayer meetings essentially undisturbed because they observed that the guards never came into the dormitories. And so the whole life there was very different because the guards never came in and they couldn't figure it out. And then one day a visitor was coming and the visitor was going to come into the dormitory and one of the regular guards said, don't go in there, it's filled with fleas. Like that. And all of a sudden, Corey f heard that. She, f she ran to Betsy and she fell on her knees. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the fleas. And she just realized that it was completely other than she had seen it. Now, Betsy knew that intuitively. Corey had to have a fact, you know, a fact had to be presented to her. But what that taught her is, why do I resist anything that God sends me? You know, why? Oh, you, you never know. It's a weave like this. How can you say, I like everything that came so far, but not this little square, clip, clip, clip. You know, how can you clip that out? It's the result of all the other threads that are woven together. You can't just make a hole and then still expect to have all the rest of it, right? It, it's all interwoven. Now, it's very hard to, to, to live that way. That's why in the Festival of Light we say, whereas in the past, see, the, the past teaching from uh, the Catholic tradition, which has emphasized the crucifixion of Jesus rather than the resurrection of Jesus. I told you all after I was with Swami in the Uffizi in Florence where there's all these beautiful paintings of, of Jesus being crucified over and over in 
bleeding and dying and martyrdom. And we came out, Swami, just in his transcendental way, said, it's time for a new theme. <laughs> he said, they have just really done that one about as much as it ever needs to be done. Well, it is time for a new theme because the emphasis on the crucifixion made us feel that what pleases God is if we suffer. And so we get kind of this kind of twisted idea which we're, we are infected by that thought, whether we're Catholic or not. We're infected by the thought that somehow we have to suffer in order to grow. And when something bad happens to us, we feel honor-bound to suffer. We feel obligated to suffer. We feel somehow we're not being sincere if we don't suffer. If some fault has been revealed within us, we feel we have to feel, you know, we have to feel guilt and we have to feel bad about it. We just don't feel that we can just look at things and go cheerfully on. But that's why every week in the Festival of Light we say, whereas in the past suffering and sorrow were the coin of man's redemption, for us now that payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. Now what are you talking about? You're talking about two of the eight manifestations of spirit, aren't you? Calmness and joy, right? Just let me be a channel. By, uh, Swami writes, by elevating my consciousness, by attuning myself to something else, no matter what comes to me, I can always receive from the spirit calmness and joy and let that be my response to it. And it's a very, 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 very different teaching. It's not about original sin and having to be redeemed. It's about being children of God and just allowing that to happen. And that's what, how Swami finally ends this book. Look, we are one with the infinite. That's what it means to be a channel. Forget everything else. That's what it is. Just be a child of God and allow that to happen. That's what's trying to happen. What were we saying? Yes, Rick? I like the um, comment that you had about, all you have to do is just turn around and see your body Because yeah. we think we build up so much energy. No, it isn't hard at all, Rick. That's it. It does, but it's a lesson worth learning. That's why you emphasize it's just what it's just, a saint is just a, a bad person who got good. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> a saint is a sinner who never gave up. Jeannie, who directs the music, says a saint is a singer who never gave up. <laughs> okay. So, any other questions or comments? Um, I, I enjoyed what Swamiji says. He gives us his one, two, three-step process. Let me just see, find it in here. Oh, he has this other thought, too, where he says sometimes, sometimes channeling happens without our will, but we're very clear on the concept. I mean, that you don't have to make effort. Let me, let me work with that a little. We talked about, we've talked about that aspect of it a lot when we talked about the three levels of awareness, the causal, the astral, and the material plane. And Swamiji, um, he calls the publication company now Crystal Clarity. And at a certain point, he, tr he tried to, Ananda, uh, the publishing arm of Ananda has been through several different names, but most recently it was Ananda Publications for years. And Swamiji finally wanted something that said more. And he came up with that thought of Crystal Clarity. And then he wrote a definition of Crystal Clarity, which is, um, I can't quote to you. But the essence of it, is simply saying that so many difficulties in life are there because we're just not clear on the concept. We're not clear on what's really trying to happen. And if we put out energy to become clearer about the question or clearer about what's really disturbing us, almost always in, the, in that clarity the answer is also present. And so that's when he talks about channeling, he talks about, you know, like what is really disturbing you. I, I recall recently I was talking to a, a woman friend and she was just feeling upset about something. It had something to do with what was going on in her personal life. And she was just sort of talking about being nervous or afraid. I said, what are you afraid of? And then she stated the obvious, well, she's afraid that thus and so is going to happen. Well, why does that frighten you? And it's sometimes we don't even ask that question. Why is this frightening me? What am I really afraid of? And very often when we feel confused, we don't know what to do, or we feel agitated, just to try to get clearer and clearer on what's really disturbing you. And then often the solution is more obvious than you think. Because sometimes we're very upset about a circumstance that we can't really affect. And that's what makes us so nervous. But, but it's not that circumstance that, that really is the core of how we feel. How can I make this more clear? Oh, let's say, well, I don't know. What if I, what if I get sick? What if I get cancer? You know, what in that really scares me? I'm afraid I won't be able to work. I'm afraid I won't have money. I'm afraid other people will have to take care of me. I'm afraid my life will end earlier. 
you know, just all the different things that you can say, but you keep taking it to a deeper and deeper level until you have some very clear idea of what you're working on. And then sometimes it's easier to work on the issue than you think it is because you're not working on the edge of it anymore, you're walk, working on the center of it. And in, a, in the same way, Swami gives this story about when he had this melody that he wanted to write, he didn't have any idea what the melody was, but he was very, very clear about what he was trying to say. And there was just no confusion in his mind about what he was trying to say, and as soon as he was very clear about what he was trying to say, then he knew exactly what it sounded like musically, because he had enough behind him to do that. Swami always told me, um, I've always had to struggle to write. I can put words easily together through my mouth, but I, it's very much harder for me to write. And for years, Swami would tell me the reason that, one of the reasons I have had trouble is that I, he said, you, you don't have a clear idea of who you're talking to. And it, it became very clear to me last year when, when Karen and I were working on the websites that we put up to answer um, especially the, the Bertolucci lawsuit, which was charges of, of sexual abuse and, and abuse of power by Swami Kriyananda and Bayananda. It was just a whole extension of the SRF lawsuit. It was just a big mess. It was a horrible big mess that went on for a long time without really going into that. But we put up a website to put up Ananda's side of the story. And I was writing the main part of that website, and I was totally blocked for about three weeks. Because every time I would try to write it, I, had, I was writing it to try to convince a few individuals who I know very well, who are, the, who are the, the, the dark nexus of energy that's coming at Ananda, and I kept trying to persuade them, who were totally unpersuadable. And as soon as I would write any little positive, cheerful statement about how good Ananda was, they would answer me. You know, they, weren't even, they weren't anywhere in the room, they weren't anywhere in the picture, they didn't know I was typing, but I, I kept trying to talk to them, and they would tell me why what I was saying didn't make any sense, and I couldn't go on with it. And I went for three weeks like that. Finally, it occurred to me that's what I was doing, and then I started writing it to a specific person, Adananda, whom I know, who was just exactly the right personality for the person I should be writing to. That they knew a little bit, they didn't know everything, they were thinking independent mind, but they were reasonable, and I just started writing right to that person, and it just flowed right out of me effortlessly. Because I couldn't channel anything because I didn't know who I was trying to write to. In that particular case, I was writing to the wrong person. But in, I've certainly discovered ever since then that writing, writing really has been easier for me because if I get a clear idea of who I'm talking to, then you know how to say it. Swamiji said he used to write to specific individuals. Now he sort of has an amalgamated reader, as he calls him. He's done it for so many years, he doesn't have to personify it as much. But very often, if you have trouble expressing yourself, think about who you're trying to talk to. And this comes in here, where he talks about the first principle of channeling is to elevate your consciousness, concentrate at the higher chakras. The second is, is to try to communicate. Isn't that right? That is the second, isn't it? Or was that the third? Okay, let me just make sure, in case I don't get this wrong. Yes, no, the, it's the third point. The second point was, oh, to give outward expression to what you feel. But the third point he talks about, which is very important, is to try to communicate what you, what you have done. And he said, and in communicating, the power of what you're doing will, will increase and become greater because it will force upon you greater awareness and greater discipline. And, and he also says in there that he has that phrase that guidance comes as you express it rather than before you express it. He, he doesn't draw that point out very long, but it's very... Uh, a very important point, that it's not like you get it all completely there and then you know what to do. It's that you, you have a little bit of an idea of what to do and more guidance comes to you as you do it. In other words, you, your own consciousness shifts as you channel the energy and then the energy has its own intelligence and it tells you what to do next. That's why it's, you elevate your consciousness, then you give outward expression to what your inspiration is. Because when you have outward expression of it, the energy flows through you and you make way for more energy. And you, you, uh, you gain courage and you gain experience and then you try to communicate. He said, if your ideas are too outrageous, he says, don't impose them on others. Tell them to the trees, as he put it. But then at some point, you have to make your inspiration a reality that others can also share. And it's really a very fundamental point because if, if nobody shares the reality but you, and now it can be because you're so super conscious, 
but it's probably because you're too subconscious. Because subconscious is a, is a self-enclosed reality. Subconscious is the realm of dreams. And when, when you're only relating to your own reality, you're immature and you're in subconsciousness. The ability to relate to realities other than your own is a sign of maturity. The ability to unify your awareness with others' awareness is a sign of superconsciousness. Because superconscious is the point in, from which everything else extends. And if you think you're having superconscious intuition, but you can't get it across to anyone, the art of learning how to get it across makes that vibration more and more universal and more and more true. That doesn't mean you have to be popular, but you have to be able to communicate to someone. You have to be able to have others grasp it. Does that make sense? And a lot of time, we, we, we claim inspiration when really all we are is being very foggy-minded. Swami writes about that a lot in his Art as a Hidden Message. He talks about just hideous art that has no consciousness behind it. He, he talks about the one piece which was called the third allegory or something like that, some hideous piece of modern sculpture. And it just, it, he, he said it was just a pretentious act by the artist to make the, the viewer think that there was some hidden meaning to this. <laughs> but but the, it was clear that the artist himself didn't know what he was trying to say. He had just sort of put random things together and maybe felt some energy flowing through him. But the clarity of communication is also a very important factor in it. So that's why, we, that's why we serve, that's why we work, that's why we give energy out instead of just holding it into ourselves. Now, you may have a unique destiny to just communicate with God, and perhaps you do, but most of us are here because we have to also work it out with each other. You don't have to be brilliant at all. And, and then Swami adds, you have to understand that your vibrations are a lot of what communicate. I, I've shared with you all my experience of the first saintly person I met at the Ramakrishna temple in the uh, late 60s, who was a Swami from India, who I went up to the Hollywood church there, the church up in the Hollywood Hills when I lived in Southern California when I was first getting on the path. You know, I must have been 19 or 20 years old. And there was this Indian Swami. It was, there, all the, most of the Swamis who spoke there were India. This was Ramakrishna's line of devotees. And there was a guest speaker from India, and he had, a, he had an accent which made him a little hard to understand. But he started speaking, and he was, from my point of view at first, he was not a good lecturer, because he just uh, wandered about, didn't seem to make very good points. It wasn't at all clear what he was trying to explain. Um, and I was, at first, you know, just kind of carping and just analyzing with my intellect, analyzing what he was saying, wondering about this point and that point, and just sort of becoming a little disgruntled. But I became conscious relatively quickly that, he, that his words were just the thinnest coating over what I would call now his vibrations, or even more profoundly his consciousness. And what he was just giving out to that room was this extraordinarily wonderful consciousness. And he didn't care what he said. You know, he wasn't, his, he wasn't channeling words. He was channeling vibrations. And he used words because we probably wouldn't have understood if he just stood there <laughs> like that. But the more he talked, the more blissful I certainly, and I think many people in the room began to feel. And I, I, I remember going afterwards to shake his hand. You know, this was the late 60s. This is a long time ago. I can still see that man. And I can still see his eyes. He just shook my hand and... He just was not home. There was nobody in that body. He was just a clear window. And he, he looked at me, but not with the kind of cognition that most people look at people. You know, we look and we, we, we analyze even just in an instant. This is, I'm looking at Benicia. She has a green dress on, a green blouse on. She has a green necklace. I've known Benicia for a long time. You know, all that happens just really fast. And I, of course, I was a stranger to him. But even when you meet a stranger, someone remarked once that, Gender is the first thing you notice and the last thing you forget about people. <laughs> but I mean, gender is not who they are. It's just the first thing you notice. But this man looked at me, I, and I don't know, I could have been a Ford automobile for all the, like, concept he was putting on me. He just looked at me with, from the infinite to the infinite. There was just infinite energy going out and infinite energy in front of him. It was all one thing. Now, that's real channeling. And, that's, and Swami wants us to understand, also, he says, 
when you channel, above all, what you're giving out is your vibrations. Elsewhere, Swami remarks that Master was often very enthusiastic about artistic or creative work that wasn't really very good, but he was responding to the consciousness behind it. Okay? And I've seen Swamiji be sometimes be very enthusiastic about things that, at least from my point of view, were not necessarily that good and sometimes not be enthusiastic about more skillful presentations because he's responding to what's actually being channeled, true inspiration that's being channeled. And so that's why um, we ourselves can't be too critical. We have to feel more the vibrations of things. But it's, it's subtle because, speaking artistically, there was a gentleman that I knew uh, years ago who used to um, do, do artistic work and he used to love to do the artistic work. He felt very inspired. But it didn't make him more in tune to do that work. And he was very confused because he, he felt so inspired doing it, but it was clear that the fruits were not making him more in tune. In fact, his, his involvement in his own artistic expression was actually making him out of tune because he was very concerned about his own artistic expression. And I thought a long time about it, my belief is that he was in tune with his ego, and so there was a certain rush of energy. You, you understand? But, but the, the very process was, he, he felt comfortable with it because it was familiar. But it wasn't really elevated. And that's where Swami says the first rule of channeling is to elevate. And to, to be channeling something deeper than just what you already know. In the early years of Ananda, it was very controversial because Swami was not enthusiastic about a lot of people's original music. And his, his reasoning was, and he would always, was always a little awkward because he would always want the musicians to just perform his music. And people would think that he was being egotistical. But what he pointed out is that people were writing, as he put it, at that time John Denver was very popular. He said what they were writing was a bad imitation of John Denver. It wasn't really that they were channeling themselves. I mean, th their own inspiration. They were just channeling a common inspiration. And he encouraged people saying that if you get in tune first with the music that I have written, then you will be able to write, I mean, music of your own. I mean, he didn't exactly spell it out, but that's what he was trying to say, which is this music will elevate your consciousness, and then once it's elevated, you will be able to tune in deeper and then offer more what you, you yourself have to offer. And that's where he emphasized that the definition of original is not to do something that's never been done before, but to do that which comes from your own point of origin. Isn't that a wonderful definition? Because you may do very simple artistic work, write very simple poetry, or write little paint watercolors that are your own watercolors, or, what, or write books, or whatever it might be. And it, it, you know, it may not be Shakespeare, and it may not be Monet, but it may, in fact, be very uh, profound if it really comes from your own inner attunement and your own inner vision of things. And if you really channel artistically or in other ways like that, you really know that you've done it because you really feel a sense of detached freedom that doesn't come in any other way. You know, just when, when you haven't done it, you just know you haven't done it. That's where Swamiji says, at first you say God is the doer because you're affirming it. But after a time, just what I was trying to say, you realize that it only happens when you're not present and for you to think that you've done it is just folly. And then you begin to do it yourself and you recognize the difference. And you, you, don't, you get this icky, confined sense of my doing it and you get this marvelous free sense of it having been done. But, but here, and this is the subtle thing he's just trying to tell us, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to do nothing, just to be a channel. You have to be very, this business about elevating your consciousness. And it's not just, oh, I think I'll write a book, so therefore I think I'll you know, put down my whiskey and put down my cigar and turn off the television and be inspired. It has to be a, an everyday kind of practice to, just as I was talking about earlier, to discipline yourself, to, to, to keep your, um, to stay in tune to stay in one of the eight manifestations of spirit. And to discipline yourself to keep, as Swamiji said, just keep trying and keep trying until it becomes clear. Get the energy going and not give up. Well, comments or questions or thoughts? 
We may have finished the story. I'm out of things to say, unless there's more to, more to be asked. All right. Um, this is the end of this class series. We take a month off, unlike last time where we just went bip bip. We're taking a month and a week off now. And I think it's the second week in November. You don't even have your calendars yet, but I know. We're going to do Whispers from Eternity. And I'll say it now, do, read the first 26 pages, which is all the introductory material. And, and also the poem Samadhi. And make sure that you use, we, we're clarifying it. It's this red book, which is the first edition. I'm assuming some of you will come. This is, this is the first edition, which they call it the first edition. It isn't actually, it's very confusing. It's called the first edition. When you open it up, it's copyrighted in 1929 and 49. And it says it's revised in 49. The key is you don't want anything that's revised later than 49. And you, nothing revi revised after 52. Because it was after Yogananda died that this book was edited into something unrecognizable. And as I told you, if you have anything that was revised after 1952, do not give it away, throw it away. Okay? <laughs> because it just isn't, it's not a book, it should not be in print. It's, it's, it's so heavily edited as to not to be the same book, so you don't want to get, you don't want somebody else to get, you don't want somebody else to read it either, you just want to get rid of it. Okay? So, bless you. See you tomorrow or the next day, as we always do. Thank you very much.